Section 15 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Empire and Papacy, 1414-1453, Part 1. The little town of Constance saw many a strange and impressive sight toward the close of the year 1414. Ever since June, preparations had been in progress for the reception of the greatest council the Middle Ages had ever known, 1414 through 1418. Toward the close of the year, princes and prelates, nobles and merchants, with a mass of lesser people of all nations and all professions, flocked into the place, the hill roads shone with many-coloured processions, and the lake was gay with boats conveying great men and their followers. Not only those taking part in affairs came to the council. Constance became the scene of an ecclesiastical conference, a political congress, and a great world fair. Amusements of all sorts were held in the streets, festivities, tournaments, and banquets lightened the graver business of the meeting, and an idle multitude found in it an occasion for diversion and money-making. The council was a great epoch in the history of the church. Meetings had often been held before this to treat of ecclesiastical matters. Popes had summoned prelates to advise and consult. At Pisa, cardinals had met to discuss the claims of rival pontiffs. But Constance was something more than these. A general council was now asserting power to settle the claims of three rival popes without adhering to the side of any. It was declaring itself superior to the papacy and was taking into its own hands the reform of the church. Three great questions were before this vast assemblage. First and foremost, there was the settlement of the papal schism, for unity must be restored in divided Christendom. Secondly, the whole church, the papacy itself, the lives of the clergy, the discipline of the monasteries, all were in need of the most stringent reform, and finally, the new doctrines which were disturbing the minds of men, of which the chief teacher was John Hus, disciple of the English Wycliffe, must be rooted out and all heretical ideas suppressed once and forever. Such a program, accompanied as it was by many points of minor importance, would provide work for several years to come. Among the great processions which were welcomed to Constance, three above all others excited universal interest. Toward the close of October came Pope John Twenty-Third, making his way through the snow, surrounded by his cardinals and protected by Frederick of Habsburg, the greatest prince and landowner in that region. On Christmas Day, the Emperor Sigismund arrived, travelling before daybreak, that he might be in time for the solemn mass at which he himself read the gospel, beginning with the appropriate words, There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. The sermon delivered on this occasion by Peter Dailly must have been uncomfortable hearing, for the proud Pope John, who was still hoping to maintain his position. The text taken was, There shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars. The sun, said the preacher, represented the pope. The moon, the emperor. 
and the stars the cardinals, but unjust ambitions, evil deeds, and negligent rule would make but a phantom of the sun, and again the holy trinity of the divine person is not more adorable than a trinity of popes is abominable, and he also stated in clear words that the council's power was superior to that of the pope. Between these two arrivals a much more humble procession found its way into the town, which nevertheless met with almost as hearty a reception, for crowds flocked in to meet the thin, bearded man in his simple black robes, who was escorted by three Bohemian nobles responsible for his safety. John Hus, under a promise of safety from the emperor, had come to Constance to maintain his views before the assembly of Christendom, and to clear himself from the charge of heresy. His safe conduct was of little avail, for shortly after his arrival he was taken from his house, despite the vehement protestations of one of the attendant nobles, and after a questioning before pope and cardinals, flung into a loathsome prison which nearly caused his death, and it was only to save him for further humiliation that the conditions of his captivity were lightened for the time. Meanwhile, the position of Pope John was far from reassuring. Although still nominally the head of the council, a murmur ever growing more and more insistent, was making itself heard in favor of his abdication. Cardinal Dailly went so far as to declare that the council had full power to force him to resign. Then followed an appalling statement, probably all too true, of the many misdeeds of the Pope, whose life had been notoriously wicked. Fearful, lest this private accusation should be published to the world, John consented to abdicate, and in clear terms and with a calm demeanor, he himself read before the emperor and assembled cardinals a promise to resign his power on the day that Benedict the Thirteenth and Gregory the Twelfth should do the same. There was general rejoicing, Sigismund, impulsive and theatrical, threw himself uncrowned at the feet of the Pope and kissed them gratefully. A proposal for the election of a successor followed at once. Doubtless John hoped to obtain his own re-election, but his character was too well known for that. The English representative at the council, Robert Hallam, Bishop of Salisbury, exclaimed that the Pope deserved to be burnt at the stake. Hopeless of swaying the council, John determined to leave Constance and see what could be done elsewhere. A request to leave on account of his health, having been refused, he contrived his own escape. The opportunity came when a great tournament was being held to which all the inhabitants of the town flocked, leaving the streets deserted. The Pope, in the humble disguise of a groom, rode out of the town unnoticed, and taking boat on the Rhine, reached Schaffhausen, the castle of his friend, Frederick of Austria, who had been privy to his flight. Terror and disorder were left behind him. Some thought that the council was thereby dissolved. Many feared the curse which he might lay upon the city, but others were ready to take advantage of the occasion. The emperor denounced the Austrian duke as a traitor, and Gershon, councillor of the assembly, proclaimed the council to be the supreme and independent authority of Christendom. A short while after the formal deposition of John the Twenty-Third, 1415, was pronounced by the council, 
and the once powerful pope, after vain attempts to evade his pursuers, was captured and imprisoned, first at Gottleben, just outside Constance, and finally in the castle of Heidelberg. When fully humiliated and no longer dangerous, he was released and made a cardinal, but his death followed immediately after. Meanwhile, John Hus had been awaiting his trial, also a prisoner at Gottleben. For some time past, Bohemia had been the center of new ideas. The whole authority of the church had been shaken by the dissensions in the papacy and the impossibility of respecting the head of the spiritual world, whilst all through the church had spread the disastrous effects of weakness at the center. Abuses of all sorts were common. The clergy were rich and neglected their duty. They held so many posts that they could not possibly fill them all satisfactorily. People in parishes were neglected and suffering. In England, during the previous century, John Wycliffe had boldly denounced the sins of the church, had struck at the whole system of ecclesiastical government, declared that the authority of the Pope was not only excessive but unnecessary, and attacked some of the doctrines of the Church, especially transubstantiation and prayers to saints. The writings of Wycliffe introduced into Bohemia had great influence, and were eagerly studied at the University of Prague, where Hus had done much to make them known. In some matters, Hus did not go as far as the English teacher, particularly in the question of transubstantiation, but he also urged reformation of abuses and superstitions, and especially denounced the sale of indulgences commanded by the Pope. He also wrote that Christ himself was the head of the Church, and the Scriptures the basis of belief. There was plenty of material here for a condemnation, and from the first, despite Sigismund's worthless safe conduct, his fate was already decided. Nevertheless, his trial dragged on for many a long day, and Hus promised to withdraw his own opinions should the cardinals be able to disprove them. But in total absence of proof, he held his own without a waiver, and refused firmly, though modestly, to condemn Wycliffe's teaching or to disown his own writings. Even here, Hus was not without supporters. His friend and disciple, Jerome of Prague followed him to Constance, only to be flung into prison. On one occasion, John of Clum, a Bohemian noble, boldly proclaimed, In my castle I would have defended him for a year against all the forces of emperor or king. How much more lords mightier than I, with castles far more impregnable. Sigismund basely deserted him. Perhaps it was a hard choice between giving up the man he had promised to protect and seeing the council, which he had done so much to collect and from which he hoped such great things, fall to pieces its work half done. In any case, his conduct was despicable, even in his own eyes, and when Hus said, Freely I came hither under the safe conduct of the emperor, Sigismund is said to have blushed deeply. His attitude was now, however, decided enough, declaring that he had only promised to protect him so that he might answer his enemy's charges, and that he could not defend a heretic, he went on to say, Far from defending you in your errors and in your contumacy, I will be the first to light the fire with my own hands. On another occasion, the emperor urged 
that not only Hus but all his followers should be condemned, and the whole sect exterminated root and branch. On the 6th of July, 1415, sentence was finally pronounced in the Cathedral of Constance. Sigismund sat on the throne with princes and cardinals round him, and the proceedings opened with mass, during which Hus as a heretic stood in the porch. Then followed the reading and condemnation of certain articles said to contain the doctrines of Wycliffe and Hus. In vain he endeavored to protest that some of the accusations were totally false. After that came the degradation. One by one his priestly robes were taken from him and his tonsure obliterated, whilst on his head was placed a tall cap of paper covered with painted devils. Judgment was then pronounced. The church has no more to do with you. We deliver your body to the secular arm, your soul to the devils in hell. The secular judge pronounced the final sentence of death by burning as a heretic, and Hus went calm and unmoved, singing and praying to his doom, 6th of July, 1415. We know not, said those who stood near, what this man may have done. We only know that his prayers to God are excellent. His ashes were flung into the lake and his clothes destroyed, that no relics might be treasured up by his sorrowing disciples, but the uselessness of such measures to efface his influence was soon to be shown. The martyrdom of Hus was followed by that of Jerome of Prague, who, as we have seen, had followed his master to Constance and to captivity. He was treated with so much cruelty in his prison that in sheer bodily weakness he gave way at his first examination and denied the doctrines of Wycliffe and Hus. Soon, however, he regained his strength, and with admirable courage deliberately destroyed all hope of escape. He proclaimed his faith with an eloquence and shrewdness and a clear-headedness perfectly marvellous after a year passed in severe confinement. There was to be no doubt now as to his attitude. This sinful retractation I now fully retract, and I am resolved to maintain the tenets of Wycliffe and of John Hus to death, believing them to be the true and pure doctrine of the gospel, even as their lives were blameless and holy. Like Hus, he went calmly to the stake, 1416, and when the executioner turned to light the heaped-up pile at his back, he called to him, Kindle it before my eyes, had I feared your fire, I should never have come to this place. He sang hymns with a steady voice until the flames leaped up around him. Much still remained for the council to do. The papal question was not yet solved. John was deposed. Gregory XII had submitted and died. Benedict still remained obstinate. He refused to come in person to defend his claims before the council unless he should be received as pope. He declared that any acts of reform decreed at Constance should be null and void, and disregarding his formal deposition, he established himself in Peniscula in Spain, and kept up a shadowy court and an imaginary authority until his death some years later. Meanwhile, the church and the council badly needed a head. Although Sigismund would gladly have carried all through on his sole authority, but the cardinals insisted and after some disputes, a new pope, Martin V, 1418-1425, was chosen from the important Roman family of the Colonna. 
Thus ended the schism and a temporary reaction in favor of church authority, and papal power began, for the council had chosen a man who would never submit to control, and who meant to make his position one of real weight and importance. As Milman says, in creating a pope of high character, it had given itself a master. It might dictate to a John the Twenty-Third, it must submit to a Martin the Fifth. The Council of Constance had achieved little of its great designs. There were many reasons for this failure. One great difficulty in the way of reform had been the danger of making any changes whilst the Church was still without a head. The great strength of the papacy lay in its continuity. There had been an unbroken line of popes claiming to be successors of St. Peter, according to tradition, the first bishop of Rome. The moderate party hesitated to take any steps which might weaken this claim, and so endanger the longed-for unity of the Church. Another obstacle to counselor action was the difficulty of finding any policy to suit the different nations whose interests were involved. Political questions were inevitably bound up with religious, and the representatives of the various states could not agree on a common scheme of reform. The efforts of the council had for the time brought peace to the church, but only by the re-establishment of papal despotism. The new pope was not a really great personality. He did not seize the unrivaled opportunity for placing himself at the head of a church reformed, united, and spiritualized. Nevertheless, he was a wise, level-headed statesman. He knew how to recover much of the papal authority lost in previous years, and to obtain control over the national churches which had been struggling toward independence. His period of rule was largely occupied with re-establishing himself in Italy, which was a scene of the wildest confusion. The Duke of Milan was warring in Lombardy. In Naples, under Joanna II, the question of succession was giving rise to endless struggle. Condottieri generals were fighting for one side or the other, and also for themselves. Braccio and Sforza being the most important. The Pope had a conference with Braccio at Florence, and it was there that he was rendered furious by the popular feeling which expressed itself in a common street song, Braccio the Great conquers every state, poor Pope Martin is not worth a farthing. The despised Pope, however, soon made himself respected. He re-established himself in Rome and restored order in the turbulent city. He recovered the states of the church and made his power felt in outlying countries, even in England, where he appointed Cardinal Beaufort his legate and exercised more authority than any pope had done since Innocent III. At home, his chief efforts were directed toward reforming the body of cardinals and reducing their power, and in this he had some success. But there were disorders in Christendom, especially the Hussite War in Bohemia, which remained a dangerous problem and Martin summoned a council to meet at Basel to consider this and other questions. His death, however, prevented his participation in this great assembly, and his successor, Eugenius IV, was left to cope with the difficulties of the situation, 1431-1447. The Emperor Sigismund had not been quietly residing at Constance during the whole long period of the council, his restless spirit desired fresh fields in which to expend his energy, 
and when Benedict XIII proved too obstinate and was supported by the states of Spain and Portugal, Sigismund set out to try the effects of imperial authority on these opponents of unity. Always short of money, the emperor sold Brandenburg to Frederick, the first of the famous Hohenzollern Margraves, confirmed Swiss conquests in return for supplies, and set out for Spain, where after long negotiations he did succeed in procuring the submission of Aragon, Castile, and Navarre, followed shortly after by that of Portugal, which completed the Union of the West. His return journey took him through France, where he hoped to pose as mediator in the great quarrel with England, which had just come to a head in the Battle of Agincourt. While in Paris, he was led to a display of authority which infuriated the French and forms a good illustration of his views as to imperial supremacy. Invited as an honored guest to watch proceedings in the Parliament of Paris, the great French law court, a case came up in which one party was unable to be heard because unequal in rank to his adversary. Sigismund at once knighted the petitioner as though he were the sovereign and overlord of the country. France was indignant, but England, to which the emperor next proceeded, took steps to prevent such an exercise of sovereign rights, showing that any claims of imperial overlordship were totally out of date by this time, if indeed the English would ever have admitted them. Before Sigismund might put foot on English soil, Humphrey of Gloucester, younger brother of the king, rode into the sea sword in hand, and demanded a promise that he would perform no act of sovereignty whilst in the kingdom. The promise given, the guest was received with the greatest pomp and ceremony, magnificently lodged in the palace of Westminster, and only departed after a six-month's visit, and amidst signs of the greatest affection from Henry V. But although it is said that the two monarchs could scarcely tear themselves from each other's arms, when farewell was said, the English king had not ceased his preparations for the French war, and the emperor did not succeed in effecting the peace of Christendom. At home once more, Sigismund found himself surrounded by difficulties. The very extent of his territories meant numerous enemies, and want of money was a constant drawback. The story goes that on one occasion he left his dirty linen in pledge, being totally unable to pay the bill for his night's lodging. His were not qualities such as fitted him for a position of such danger in which tact as well as strength was necessary. Sigismund was in many ways a very attractive personality. Tall and handsome, with fair hair and blue eyes, he was extremely well educated and could discourse easily in Czech, Latin, German, French, and Italian. Although he never forgot his imperial dignity, he knew how to be familiar and courteous, was a very good talker and prompted repartee. Unfortunately, he had external qualities rather than solid virtues. He was lacking in real strength and perseverance, and above all in stability. His word could not be trusted, and little respect could be accorded to a man who could forget his promises and break his alliances. He would have made a very good show-king, but he lived at a time when burning questions needed solution, and when ceremonies and ambitious projects could not take the place of steady purpose and real hard work. The greatest danger left by the Council to Sigismund and Germany was the Hussite War, 1419-1431. The martyrdom of Hus and Jerome had inflamed, not discouraged, the reforming party in Bohemia, 
and in 1419 open warfare broke out in Prague. One of the demands of the Bohemian reformers was the administration of the communion in both kinds, from which they obtained the name of Utraquists. The beginnings of revolt were caused when a procession, headed by a priest bearing the chalice, had stones flung at it from a window of the town hall, whither the Utraquists had repaired to demand the release of some of their numbers. The cup was knocked from the priest's hands, and the mob roused to sudden fury poured into the house, slew the burgomaster, and flung all the magistrates from the window on to the weapons of those below. The news of this disturbance was too much for King Wenzel, weakened as he was by a life of self-indulgence. He was struck with apoplexy and died on the spot, with a great shout and roar as of a lion. 1419. End of section 15.